Thank you, Valerie. Good morning. I want to welcome you here to Local Church St. Pete. I'm Darren. I'm the lead pastor. If you're brand new here, uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, this is my wife, Valerie. She just gave announcements. I've got my boys here on the front row. All the boys are mine. The girls are not, um, but they are my nieces. So, um, and there goes one of my boys. Uh, so, thank you so much for being here. Y'all look great. You look good. It's a good day. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 15. So some of the best movies, at least I think, are the ones that end, uh, you think are going to end in a certain way, but to everyone's surprise, just leave you in shock. The credits start to roll, and it takes a few minutes for everything to kind of sink in, like what just happened, right? Well, Jesus' life, it, it not only ended in a way that surprised everyone, it turned out to be the beginning of something new. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning, beginning in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, uh, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also uh, looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to, to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, would you, by your spirit, give us eyes to see. Lord, would you soften our hearts to receive all that you have for us. We thank you for your word. It is a treasure to us. We pray that we would pay attention, that we lean in like never before. In Christ's name, amen. Three things I pray we see here this morning. First, the firm conclusion. Second, the surprise ending. And third, the new beginning. First, the firm conclusion. What was Friday? It was late afternoon. And as evening approached, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was actually said to be a part of the council, the Sanhedrin. He was a prominent member of this council, this religious council, and who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went boldly and asked Pilate for Jesus' body. Now, in Matthew 27, it tells us that Joseph, this Joseph was actually a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. But in John 19, it adds this, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He held a prestigious position, within a religious council called the Sanhedrin. He was a follower of Jesus, but secretly. But here in this real twist of irony, this member of this council that had just condemned Jesus to death is making an appeal for his body. So Joseph is risking everything by coming forward. He's prepared. He's prepared to face ceremonial uncleanliness. It's just before the Sabbath. He's prepared to face suspicion for being associated with Jesus? I mean, why do this? Why do this for a crucified man? I think Joseph had had enough. I think he had had enough of just sitting in the shadows as a secret disciple. I think he was disgusted by the events of the day, and I I think he wanted to truly honor Jesus in his death. So we're told Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, what's that about? Jesus came, and his message was, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The good news of what? The gospel of what? The gospel of the kingdom. Why is the kingdom good news? Why is a kingdom good news to me? To you? This man Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the rule of God. It's his reign. And where there's a kingdom, there's a king. And Jesus is the king. It's the rule of God that would upend the powers of darkness. Joseph of Arimathea, like many Jews of his day, were waiting for the kingdom of God. Waiting for God to intervene. Waiting for restoration. Waiting for God to bring freedom from their oppressors. And in particular, on that day, the power of Rome. They were waiting for God to usher in a new day. A new age of peace and restoration, of freedom and rest. And all of that would happen through the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. All of that would happen through him. But now the one who claimed to be this Messiah, he's dead. The least Joseph of Arimathea could do is honor him in his death. And so that's what he does. And with no regard for his own reputation or life, he makes this bold request for Jesus' corpse. Now, Jewish law did not permit any work on the Sabbath, which meant they had to hurry. They had to bury the body of Jesus right then and there. 
The Sabbath would begin that night. And so he couldn't do it alone. He had friends help him. We're actually told that Nicodemus joined him in this. Nicodemus was another religious leader of that day who had called on Jesus secretly in, in the night to come and talk to him. Do you remember the conversation, if you're familiar with the story of Nicodemus, where Jesus was conversing with Nicodemus about what it means to be born again? And here he is, a religious leader uh, in, in Israel, and he's scratching his head, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, no, this is a work of the Spirit. You must be born again. And so here we have Joseph of Arimathea with some of his friends. And you know, it's interesting that Joseph's request for Jesus' body, it pushes key witnesses forward to confirm what has taken place. Who are those witnesses? In this text, in Mark 15 and 16, we have Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor of this area, and Pilate is surprised. He's surprised to hear Jesus is already dead, and so he calls on the one who was overseeing everything that was taking place, the expert in crucifixion. He calls on the centurion, who would confirm whether or not Jesus was in fact dead. And by the way, the centurion's life depended on him really getting the answer right. And by the way, any promotion, any future within government for Pilate depended on the centurion getting this right. They're not messing around. The centurion comes back with a report, and he's certain. What is the centurion, this expert in crucifixion, what is he certain about? He is certain that Jesus is dead. And he's so certain that he gives the body Actually, Pilate gives permission to Joseph to take the corpse of Jesus. There are eight references, actually, to Jesus' body in this text. And so there's a a lot of concern here uh, over the body of Jesus. I think the author, Mark, and I think the Holy Spirit wants us to know something very important here. Jesus is, is truly dead. The firm conclusion is that Jesus is dead. And there are multiple witnesses to this fact. Second, the surprise ending. Three women, they're making their way to the tomb at sunrise, first day of the week, Sunday. They had bought spices. They were bringing these spices to honor Jesus in his death. These are three women who were disciples of Jesus, not expecting resurrection. They had followed him in his life. They had had expectations and a lot of misconceptions about Jesus. Sure, they had embraced him and by faith followed him, but things hadn't gone how they planned. But here they were. They were going to honor their rabbi, their teacher, whom they thought was Messiah. They were going to honor him in his death. They're wanting to honor Jesus, express devotion and love, and so these spices that they were bringing would have helped to keep the stench down during decomposition. And so you have to understand the burial process in that day and still today in some areas. It's a two-step process where first the body would be wrapped in linen or in cloth and prepped with uh, lots of spices rubbed over it so that after it decomposed, the bones would then be placed in a box or on a shelf within the tomb to make room for other bodies. Just after sunrise, first day of the week, which is why we gather on the first day of the week, The women are asking about the stone. Most tombs had this large stone that oftentimes would have been on a track and at an angle. This stone that was in in the doorway uh, at the tomb, it would keep the stench from from seeping out and it would keep grave robbers from, from getting in. 
And so they're, they're asking themselves, all right, who's going to move the stone? I mean, this thing is large. So hold up, though. Wait. They arrive at the scene. They arrive at the tomb, and the stone is rolled away. And there's this young man dressed in white sitting on the right, Mark says. And they're like, oh, this is, this is totally normal. We totally expected this. No, that's not what they're like. They're freaking out. They are, uh, they're, they're alarmed. And they should be. You know, one of the ways that we can be certain that this is a historical account and not legend is the fact that Mark's first witnesses in his account in the, in the resurrection, Mark's first witnesses that he pushes forward here in this account are women. Now, in ancient societies, the testimony of a woman wasn't given much weight. Women were marginalized. And this was especially true in a court of law. But I love, I love how this account pays no attention to cultural discrimination and prejudice. And how the testimony of these three women 2,000 years ago began what we're a part of right here today, this morning. I love that. Here they are, three key witnesses to Jesus' crucifixion to his burial, to his empty tomb. And their names are mentioned a few times. I mean, did you catch that? As if to say to the first century reader, go ask them yourself. They were there. These are eyewitnesses. Well, back to this young man dressed in white, this angelic being. We see in chapter 16, verse 6, he says, don't be alarmed. Well, that's easy for him to say, right? But he goes on to say, he has risen. He's not here. And what this young man dressed in white, what this angelic being is saying is, Jesus is alive, just like you're alive. Breath in your lungs, heart beating. But, but even more so, Jesus is alive, which means he's also that promise-keeping, prophecy-fulfilling, death-defeating Messiah that you've been longing for. That's who he is. This kind of news has direct implications on on the women that day. But this kind of news, this news has direct implications on our lives. I mean, we hear news all the time that's more like entertainment to us. And maybe the story of Jesus has been like that for you for some time. More like entertainment, more like just a story. You haven't thought of it as news that has implications on your life. We read the news We hear the news and we're hearing of something that feels like it's worlds apart from us. Yeah, that's happening way over there. It's not going to impact me at all. This news, this news matters to us. There's implications for our life. It matters. Have you ever received news that's just so unbelievable, hard to grasp that it felt like a dream? So thoughts just begin screaming through your, your head. Your heart starts to race. That's where they are. That's where these women are. They're receiving news that just seems so unbelievable. Their hearts start to race. These thoughts start to scream through their heads. And Mark says they are astonished. In other words, they're shocked. They're overwhelmed. They're speechless. Rightly so. And so this young man in white says, go, tell the disciples. Hey, listen, he's saying, don't keep this to yourself. You can't keep this news to yourself. Go tell the disciples. Go tell the ones who, who thought they knew what Jesus was going to do. Go tell the ones who only saw in part. They'll see in fullness soon enough. Go tell them this news. 
this life-changing news that has implications on their life as well. And, oh, by the way, tell Peter too. Peter is singled out. Why is Peter singled out? If you haven't figured it out by now, this message from this young man dressed in white, well, he's passing on a message from Jesus himself. Jesus, the risen king. Here's what Jesus doesn't say. Hey, uh, tell Peter, when I see him, he better have a good explanation as to why he denied me three times. He better get ready. Doesn't say that. Jesus understood the sense of shame and despair that Peter experienced when he betrayed Jesus the night before, a couple nights before. He singled Peter out to bring assurance, I think, to bring comfort. In a way, saying this, you're not at all excluded from what I'm about to do. In fact, I'm going to use you, Peter, in ways you can't even imagine. And maybe you feel like Peter. You've been stiff-arming the Lord for years. You've been ignoring what you know is true. You've been just doing things the way you think is right, not bowing your life to King Jesus. Maybe you don't even know how to do that, but you know you've, you want to. And you feel shame. This is for you. Go tell the disciples and Peter, put your name there. This message is for you. Verse 7 of chapter 16. The angel says, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. I wonder if that, that, those, that line right there just continue to repeat in their heads. Just as he told you. Just as he told you. Just as he told you. Those words must have unlocked just this treasure box of, of things that Jesus had previously said to them but were hidden behind their own misconceptions and fears. But immediately, dots are beginning to connect. Those puzzle pieces are starting to come together. Oh, that's right. That's what Jesus said. He said the Son of Man would be crucified. That's right. But he'd be raised three days later. He said this. It's come to pass. So this appropriate response now, verse 8, trembling and bewildered. I mean, they're in shock, like breath has been knocked out of them. This is the surprise ending. Listen, it is not a surprise that Jesus was actually crucified. His family thought... Uh, if he kept talking the way he was talking, remember that one part in the Gospels where his, his brothers and his mom, they're like standing outside of the house where he's teaching and preaching and they're trying to get him because they're afraid if he keeps talking like this, what it's going to end up leading to. They know where this is going. It's not a surprise that he was crucified. It is a surprise that the tomb is empty. But their response, these women, their response and I think it's an expression of faith. It's a beautiful expression of faith. It's one of shock and obedience. They're astonished, breathless, speechless. I think that can be an expression of faith, most certainly. But they're also obedient. And they go, and, and they, they go in fear, trembling along the way. I, I want you to think of the moment that you held your baby for the first time, if you, if you have a child. Or think of the moment you saw your bride walk out of the back doors of the church, coming down the aisle, if, if you're married and if you're a man. 
Uh, I, I want you to also, though, <laughs> entertain with me the thought of maybe seeing a friend make it through surgery that you, you weren't sure if they were going to make it through and, and that first embrace. All right, so all those feelings combined, what does it stir? Incredible hope and joy, like outrageous dreams are coming true. It's better than you even imagined. And that's what's happening here. And so here, here's their response. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. First of all, I love the honesty of Scripture. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts end the Gospel of Mark right here. Verse 8. Now, translations, our translations have chosen to keep verses 9 through 20, but most have included a footnote, and that is helpful. You should be encouraged by that footnote, what it communicates. But I, I want us, don't be distracted by that. What I want us to think about is the verse 8. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End scene. Credits start to roll. So abrupt, so suspenseful. They didn't say anything to anyone until they reached the disciples. We know that they reached the other disciples. We have other accounts of this story. They collected themselves together enough to tell the disciples what they were told. We're told in Luke 24, their report sent Peter and John racing back to the tomb. But I think Mark's ending is in keeping with how he's written about Jesus's uh, life and ministry. He's been writing this way. I love the Gospel of Mark. It's one of my favorite accounts. I mean, they're all great. But Mark is, is, is so fun. I, I call it the action movie of the Gospels. It moves so fast-paced, just from one thing to the next. And Mark isn't shy. He isn't, he isn't bashful about what he's doing. He's saying, this is the good news. This is the Gospel about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. He's saying, listen, what I'm telling you here." I just want to tell you right away in verse 1 of chapter 1, this is about Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the divine one that you've been waiting for and that you long for and that you need in your life. This is about him. And then Mark goes through this story after story, fast-paced, uh, telling us that Jesus, oh my, he forgives sin. He has power over the demonic realm. He, he heals the sick. He raises the dead. He preaches with authority. He equates himself with God. Who is this Jesus? Well, Mark has an agenda. He's putting Jesus front and center, and he's inviting us to make a decision about Jesus. Mark chapter 8, right in the middle of the book, there's a question that Jesus himself delivers to the disciples, and what does he say? Who do you say I am? Yeah, yeah, enough about what everyone else says. Yeah, people say you're this and that. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are Christ, the Messiah. Peter got it right. And then for the next eight chapters of the, of the gospel, it slows down to this last week of Jesus' life. Why? It had been moving along so fast, covering three years and eight chapters. Why does it slow down to one week? Because it's emphasizing the last week of Jesus' life, which is why he came. He came to die. He came to die. And then it ends so abruptly, and you're like, What? what? They're running back scared and just heard this message that he's risen. Yeah, exactly. And Mark is saying, now what? What are you going to do with this? 
It's a cliffhanger. It's as if Mark is saying there's no real end here because it's not the end. It's the beginning. And that's what I want us to see now, the new beginning that's been opened for us through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, now listen, maybe you've known all about the surprise ending, the resurrection. You've known about it. You've, you've heard the story before, maybe since you were a child. You know, Jesus rose from the dead and followers of Jesus ever since have been worshiping him, worshiping him. But did you know that Jesus' resurrection is the new beginning that we all need? We all need this beginning. We've all experienced the unraveling effects of sin and brokenness. Man, we, we feel it. We see it. We know it. We know this world is broken. And Jesus' resurrection is God's answer to that unraveling. It's how we and creation itself will find restoration and wholeness again. It's how we will find renewal and rescue. It's how we will be reconciled. It's how our sin, our brokenness will be dealt with. The whole storyline of the Bible is pointing to the fact that we are broken, that we've rebelled against this holy God. How could we be reconciled and made right? And God in his grace and love does something. He answers the how with Jesus. Look with me, please, in 2 Corinthians. Those who look to Jesus are called new creations in Christ Jesus. Now, check this out. In 2 Corinthians, this letter to a church in Corinth by the Apostle Paul, and he writes this to them in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now, that's loaded. Anyone in Christ, what's that mean? Therefore, if anyone has surrendered their life to Jesus, recognized him as the Son of God, as the, the Messiah, the Savior, the one in whom you find forgiveness, if, if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a new creation. That's what you are. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul says. We beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And here's the mystery of all mysteries. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this glorious exchange that goes down. Christ takes my sin and yours upon himself and receives the punishment that we deserve. We, by faith in Jesus, receive we receive the righteousness of, of Christ, the rightness, the full obedience. We stand cleansed of our sin. Sons and daughters of, of God, reconciled 
into a, a, a living, breathing relationship with God. It's breathtaking. Maybe, though, you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, but you've lost your joy, right? You just, you've lost that passion. And you need renewal. You need revival. And you're sitting here thinking, all right, Darren, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I want to be joyful in response to this. I, I want to be passionate for Christ. I need a sort of renewal to, to happen. I, I believe God can do that here today. I know he can. Or maybe you've never thought about following Jesus before, but you're hearing this story, and you're like, all right, what are my next steps? Maybe you've been content with identifying as spiritual, but it's been on your terms and not Jesus's. Jesus is not one of many ways. Uh, he's, he's not going to settle for that. He's the way. Maybe you've dismissed it all as just a mystery. You can't know anything for sure. And you've been pretty sure about that. There's a lot of mystery to God. How are we going to wrap our minds around the infinite? But what has God made clear through Christ? What has God made crystal clear, known to us through eyewitness accounts, historical accuracy, He's calling you to himself. What has God made clear about his disposition towards you and me? What is he inviting us into? He's inviting us into a new relationship with him, a beautiful relationship with him. Following Jesus into this new beginning, it requires faith, which is surrender. It means repenting and believing, two sides of the same coin, owning up to the fact that you're broken and you're a sinner and you need a savior and putting your faith in Jesus, that you might find forgiveness of sins. Church, as we close this morning, uh, Joseph of Arimathea came out of the shadows, didn't he? And he just boldly stepped forward to do something for Jesus. The women at the tomb with their spices, they stepped forward boldly to do something for Jesus. But you know, both groups they ended up discovering Jesus was the one who did something for them. And he did what they could not do for themselves. Do you know that? He's, he's done that for you. He's done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He's done for me what I cannot do for myself. We cannot pay the penalty of our sin. We cannot overcome the power of our sin, which is death. And Jesus did both. Jesus did both. And so he opened a new beginning for you to walk in right now, right here. And now the credits are rolling. It might take a few minutes to sink in. It might take a little longer than that. I, I'm not an angelic being dressed in white, but I am carrying his message. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. What's your response? Is it astonishment and shock and obedience? That's an appropriate response to this surprise ending. It's an appropriate response to the new beginning that's been opened up for you.
This is big. What's your next move? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the love that we see in this story. Thank you for the the move you made to reconcile us to yourself. Thank you for the triumph through Christ, through his resurrection over sin and death. Thank you for what that means for us now that we can have forgiveness now and relationship with you now and walk empowered by your spirit now. Lord, we give you praise. You're so good. We celebrate this truth, this foundational truth, the resurrection and what it means for us here, now, and forever. Amen. Amen.